0: This is Zach Ephron and you're listening to the stupid cancer show.
1: I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes. In the head. Really?
2: with a time machine? What about the Lorian? This is
3: the stupid cancer show. Uh oh, sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs>
0: Hello
4: there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew
1: Duff. woo
4: Nothing is anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chip spots. Oh, <laughs>
0: Monday, April twenty second, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. The voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a seventeen year young adult survivor of brain cancer.
3: And my name is Annie Goodman, journalist, young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show.
0: Okay, it is not okay that seventy two thousand young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under forty? Sucked. Huh? Time to get busy living, folks. Cause the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time.
3: On tonight's show, we go down the rabbit hole again as we discuss the perils and pitfalls of bureaucratic hot mess we call a healthcare system. Join experts Monica Bryant with Navigating Cancer Survivorship and Matthew Farber with the Association of Community Cancer Centers for an epic roundtable debate and Survivor Spotlight on leukemia survivor Jen Stewart.
0: All right, the Stupid Cancer Show was a production of... Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first time listeners here on the Block up Radio Network as we come to you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in New York City.
3: What up, MZ?
0: Hello, Annie.
3: How's it going?
0: How's it going? What's going on?
3: Everyone's abandoned us because they're in Vegas. they are getting ready for Vegas.
0: Well, what's happening in Vegas?
3: I don't know. I, I just know I'm getting on a plane and you're going to be there too. We're on the same flight, aren't we? Yeah, we are. I'm Maureen. And Sal, who's on our board.
0: So it's Monday.
3: It's Monday. And we're
0: leaving on Wednesday.
3: I have not done laundry.
0: <laughs> I packed last night.
3: You are aggressive.
0: I packed everything last night. I am good to go on Wednesday morning. I have to leave the house at like 5 a.m. What time is that flight? Like it's 8 flight or 9? I at 8. I was right. going to
3: leave at five thirty.
0: Yeah, you don't at, need to
3: leave at five because you live closer to Kennedy than I do. It's
0: Delta, so I can leave. Yeah, it's fifteen minutes for me to get to the airport. Yeah, it's like
3: a half hour for me. All right,
0: so I can leave at like I can leave at six. I'll be you right. You know,
3: why? I could probably take fifteen minutes too because that time of day is like crickets in New York City. Well, anyway,
0: we are going to Las Vegas to we attend are. the sixth annual OMG Cancer Summit. The event we've been discussing all year round. The event that takes us one year to plan is finally here on Wednesday. We have reached four hundred and fifty registered attendees
3: I am super pumped The bells and whistles I'm almost 32 years old and I've never been to Vegas which is like a travesty Yeah so I am super pumped and um I probably should have gone when I was younger when I was able to drink my face off and not care about you know the whole I had cancer thing but I'll drink anyway Within moderation. Well, everything in moderation. Yeah. You know, it's probably better that I'm going now because when I was younger, I probably would have, like, hit the ATM when I was drunk and gambled my rent away. Right. So it's probably better this way. Yeah, but isn't it, like, they say red
0: wine's good for you one day, red wine's not good for you one day. They even said, like, vodka's good for you one day because it parses your immune system but only in moderation. Like, anything is good and bad for you?
3: Crazy story. Last week, so even with all of my uh, you know doctor's orders of alcohol and spiking my blood sugar um uh, my doctor kept telling me she's like don't drink too much don't drink too much and i admitted to her that before i was diagnosed i would sometimes have like six drinks in a night and i said that was normal right cuz i'm 30 years old yes. I'm 30 i'm not married i don't have kids i live in new york city that is what you do we're a bunch of lushes <laughs> and um after she almost after she picked up her draw and got a back in her chair She said that I needed to cut back. And there was a study that came out probably two weeks ago that said that if you've never had breast cancer, that alcohol increases your risk. But if you've already had breast cancer and you're a survivor in remission, it does not affect your health.
0: Does it decrease your risk?
3: No. It's exactly the same. Okay. So the big part that I think is the whole entire watching your alcohol intake is you have to keep – a relatively low body weight, not, like, low, like, be anorexic, but you're not supposed to get overweight.
0: Well, what if you, is there any way to, like, fist kale while you're drinking alcohol and it'll neutral itself out?
3: Um, I, tr- You know, what's funny is the one thing I'm not supposed to drink anymore is beer, so I try to stay away. Um, I definitely drink beer, though. Um, I drink a lot of wine, but vodka I save for special occasions. So there'll probably be some vodka in Atlantic City. I'm sorry, in Vegas. I just went to Atlanta. Well, there City. is
0: plenty of vodka in Atlantic City.
3: Yes, and I'm gonna partake in it. Good. But okay. I uh yeah, I just have to be careful. And the big thing is just they don't want you to get overweight because if you the one thing that is proven is if you were if you were overweight, that will play into whether you relapse or whatever. So right. that's but, the only but, thing that's been proven is that you have to you can't be overweight.
0: Okay, so I'm screwed.
3: You didn't have breast cancer.
0: I could get male breast cancer.
3: That is incredibly rare.
0: I couldn't get anything.
3: You can get anything, but I think that you should not... I can't get
0: ovarian cancer.
3: (laughs) And I can't get testicular. Right. But I would not worry about you getting male breast cancer. I would not let that keep you from having a cocktail. (laughs)
0: Okay. I mean, and that's the struggle with running a nonprofit that serves young adults. You want them to feel normalized and non-threatening and non-clinical and this is what we would do anyway, it's our culture, it's what right. we do, and at the same time, are we promoting risk behavior, but how is that any different than anything else in the universe?
3: I mean, you you have to toe the line. You you know, but the big thing about having had cancer at a young age is you do feel the isolation of having to limit yourself in some ways, whether it be drinking alcohol or staying up late or whatever, that as long as we... Promote moderation for everything, and no one feels like peer pressure to partake in anything. I think right. it's fine. So, and I've been to a you know plenty. I, when my first stupid cancer event, I was in treatment. I couldn't drink. Right. Um. I just really I wasn't allowed to, and I didn't feel any different because everyone understood, and no one there is like standing on tables this, doing shots.
0: This also goes into we talked about this before the show, folks. Uh, mind over matter kind of stuff. Yeah. If you're so miserable and so sick and going out and you could tolerate a beer makes you feel better mentally, lets you breathe some fresh air, is that not somehow contributory to your mental well-being? Does your mental well-being not somehow affect your physical well-being?
3: It does, to a point. Um, I remember when I was in treatment, I asked my doctor, you know, what should I eat, what should I eat? And she was like, eat whatever makes you happy, whatever tastes, tastes good to you. Because when I was in treatment, everything tasted like crap. Right. But you know what tasted good was ice cream. Full fat, heavy ice cream. And my doctor was like, if you want ice cream, she's like, eat ice cream. She's like, you can't, you know, lose weight. You need the calories. You need the sugar because, you you know, chemo depletes you so much. Right. But, you know, my doctors didn't want me drinking because, and this is the same for many patients who have chemotherapy, is the stress chemotherapy puts in your liver. Right. For breaking down the medication. Sure, sure, sure. So they didn't want me at my liver to be metabolizing alcohol while well, it's trying to metabolize the drugs but it is important to have a sense of normalcy and of my doctors t- told me because i said you know it's the summer everyone's going out rooftop bars i want to go but i feel so weird because i don't drink and i would get club soda with slash cranberry i went to a wedding and i had like 18 club sodas with cranberry because i was just so dehydrated de- treatment so dehydrating i drank like right eight club sodas and cranberry And someone thought I was, like, tanked.
0: Uh And I
3: was like, "Uh, yeah, I'm not bombed at all. I haven't had a drop of alcohol. But they assumed that I had been, like, pounding vodka. But what I was really pounding was club soda and cranberry juice. So there's ways to, like, live your life. You just have to kind of make your peace with it and do what you're comfortable with. Right. And it's important to not let yourself, like, get into this little bubble and isolate yourself. Because you need to be happy and see the positives and see your friends. Because your friends want to see you. Well, speaking
0: of friends, we have a wonderful guest we do. to kick off the show tonight, and I'm thrilled to introduce her. She's become a huge, huge, huge influence, motivator, volunteer, leader within the auto Cancer community. Her name is Jen Stewart, and willing to reveal her age, she was diagnosed at the age of 20, 15 years ago. With um, AML, which I believe is acute myelogenous leukemia, Uh, she will correct me as most people do if I'm incorrect. Uh, She had a bone marrow transplant at Fred Hutch in Seattle, and she is the deputy executive deputy co-chair something of the OMG Steering Committee. And we are thrilled to have her. And she will again correct me. Allie Ward will beat the crap out of me for (laughs) saying that incorrectly. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Jen Stewart. Hi, Jen.
1: Hi,
3: Matt. Hi, Annie. Hey,
0: John. So, this has been a long time coming, and I almost feel a sense of guilt, but I don't because <laughs> if we had you on at any other point in time in the show, it wouldn't have been as meaningful because the role you're playing now within the organization is so ridiculously awesome.
1: Oh, well, I'm happy to help, and um, I love helping out. I think it's a fantastic organization, and I know you and I have talked about this previously, but I would have killed for something like this when I got diagnosed, and I actually searched endlessly for something like this, and um, there really wasn't anything that was available to me at that time, so I just made do with what I could find. So, well,
0: you we, and I are going to join a, 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 a elite club called young adults diagnosed during the Clinton administration.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 we will.
0: So, talk us down down this road here. I was 21 when I was diagnosed. You were 20.
1: I was um, 20.
0: You were probably your typical college student living your life.
1: I was. I was. Um, I. Had gone to Vienna for my semester abroad, and I came back and took a semester off, Uh, worked with kids, just needed a break, you know, from college and everything, and uh, during that time started experiencing some stuff that was weird, but, you know, chalked it up to lack of sleep, being, you know, a 20-year-old, and working with kids, and and all sorts of other things, never in a million years would have thought that the the reason was that I was getting sick, and then... um, On a Friday, the Friday I was supposed to move back into my apartment in college. Instead, I wound up in a doctor's office and then subsequently at the hospital. And, you know, as opposed to going back to college, I went into chemo. So I got diagnosed on a Friday, had to start induction chemo on a Monday. So I didn't really have a lot of time
3: to figure anything out at
1: that point. It was really
3: just, okay, here we go. That's like so, thirty seconds to adjust what your doctor just told you. Before you even know what your doctor just told you, you're like wig shopping.
1: Yes, pretty much. Yeah. before so I even knew it, I had a central line, and was losing my hair. So
3: wow. Yeah, so that, that was
0: that's almost atypical though, because usually young adults get have have like a lengthy period of time at before least before
3: they're diagnosed.
0: Before they're diagnosed, and there's not a lot of like, oh my god, you have cancer tomorrow. Um, So that must have been, I mean, it's it's incredibly ridiculous and shocking to begin with, but everything you're talking about as a 20-year-old, getting told this and then goodbye and hello and here's your room and good luck, what was that like for your family?
1: Um, Shocking. Uh, But I I have an amazing family, and they completely rallied. I mean, my brother was only 13 at the time, so... Really, not only did my family rally, but the entire community and his friends and their families really rallied around us, um, gave him a place to go. Uh, My family, somebody was in my hospital room with me almost all the time. Uh, They just wound up taking shifts. My dad's company was awesome. They let him stay home. He traveled for a living. So him being there was just in and of itself a gift from them, and um, it was a whirlwind. It was a whirlwind of seven days of 24-7 chemo. Um, with days two, four, and six, I had an additional little oomph of some lovely orange chemo. Still can't oh, drink man. any sort of yeah. orange
3: soda. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I, but, guess those uh, advers- I guess those food aversions and other aversions never go away, do they? No,
1: 15 years later, still no orange soda. Not going to happen.
3: <laughs> All right, fair enough. So when you were going through this whole process, you obviously only had three days, so you... Did your doctors talk to you about fertility? I mean, you had such a short amount of time to even digest what was happening. So yeah. walk us through that whole process of, you know, what you were thinking, what you were feeling, what your doctors told you, what they didn't tell you, what you wish they told you.
1: Yeah, at at the time it really was uh you have to go to on a Friday afternoon. Went to the hematologist. He sent us directly to the hospital. Had a bone marrow aspiration, which I do not suggest getting at 4 p.m. on a holiday weekend in May. <laughs> Yikes. Um But besides that, then it was really he called us that night and said, It's leukemia. We have to do additional tests to see what type, because that determines your treatment. And then I had to go back, and if my platelets dropped any lower, I would be in the hospital on Saturday. If not, central line first thing Monday morning. Um, We didn't really have a lot of chance to talk about anything other than this is what has to happen immediately. My platelets were so low that they actually were afraid I was going to bleed out over the weekend. So for me, I didn't really have a chance to even begin to think about anything along the lines of fertility until I had finished with my first round of chemo, was in the hospital for 21 days. And got out of the hospital for the first round. And at that point, that's when everything started to really hit home, and I started to question all sorts of other things. Um, I had another round of consolidation chemo to keep everything in check, and at that point, we had found out that my brother was a match, perfect Amazing. match, um, which was unbelievable, which gave me an avenue that, you know, was open that I, we didn't have before. So for us, um, that I, started, I actually started interviewing places. I went to different places on the East Coast and then I went out to Seattle and really just met with doctors and talked about treatments and the way that they did things and really figured out what was best for me um, and my family and went from there. At that point Annie, for fertility, the only option that was even slightly viable was the potential, and I mean this is 1998 so there's been huge amounts of you know, improvement and advancement since then. But at that point, they had just started to really begin freezing eggs, and it would have been a surgery, and actually not eggs, right. but ovaries. It would have been a surgery to take out an ovary with the hopes that they could then, after everything, put it back in, attach it to the existing ovary that would still be in me, and hope that maybe we would get something. Right. Um, and at that, sounds, that, that point, sounds- Painful, complicated, and yikes.
0: And futuristic. Yeah.
1: Yes. (laughs) Futuristic, exactly. And at that point it was, okay, you can do the surgery, which opens you up to more infections, and you're going to have to go through another round of chemo. Or you say, okay, this is obviously something that just can't happen in my life, and you move on to the fact that you're going to do the thing that will probably save your life. Because for me, they gave me an 80% chance of relapsing if I didn't do a transplant and a 60% chance of not relapsing if I did.
0: Jen, where so, were you living at the time?
1: I was in Connecticut. Was so in how Connecticut. did you get
0: to Seattle?
1: Um My mother is a nurse, she's a pediatric nurse, and so she spoke to some people and someone that we know that does cancer research um, suggested he said if it were him, he would go to Seattle because Fred Hutch is where the whole process was developed and I'm not going to say perfected, but, you know, they they do everything. They take all the hard cases, they have entire teams that follow you. you, they have experts in everything, fellows from all over the world come And study there, and are you know they're considered you know they're they're part of your doctors. But for me, um, one of my main reasons and the logical reason was that they at that point for someone with a fully related, matched, fully matched related transplant, they didn't do total body radiation. They just gave you radiation in pill form. So as opposed to everybody on the east coast was doing total body radiation that was the only option that i had on the east coast so
0: how did you deal with the school did you have to call them and say this was happening i mean what you were junior or senior
1: i was a junior in college i was entering my senior year in college i had to do take a medical leave of absence but then the rigmarole that happened with the insurance was kind of ridiculous because they kept saying, well, you're not a student, and we kept saying, no, I'm a student. Technically, I'm just on a medical leave of absence, and they kept saying, well, if you're not a student, you're not covered, and we kept saying, no, actually, medical leave of absence still covered, so um, for us, that was that was quite a, a pain in the butt while well, I was in the middle of chemo trying to get all of that figured out, but um, in the end, you know, it, we wound up being able to straighten everything out, but...
0: Did you have to, like, go through the litigation process or constant appeals process to get them to care?
1: um, No, I didn't have to do that much. Um, I did have to do that somewhat after treatment to try to get some things covered that they were um, denying, more so out in Seattle than than the original induction rounds. But um, I was really, really lucky. The insurance that my parents had was comprehensive, And it was a self-insured company, so my dad's company could approve things that the insurance denied if we pushed hard enough, and they did do that for a couple of different things. So
0: good. And so, uh, talk us. All right. So, so obviously, I was diagnosed in '95. You're '98. There was no notion of survivorship. There was no notion of peer support. The hospitals just were kind of like meat factories at the time.
3: There was barely internet.
0: There was barely any internet. You know, yeah. I, I've learned to forgive the 90s for being what they were and <laughs> wish that we had, you know, today, To, you know, God forbid we got sick today, the better potentially increased, you know, uh, positive experience dealing with crap. But at, at, at the end of the day, how did you navigate the rebuilding your life from this, going back to school, getting the your job started, and I only say this because I, I, we were diagnosed in college as, as seniors, and right, right when you're just about to launch your universe, it, it comes crumbling down.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. For me, it was um, it was difficult. I mean, I actually pushed myself and went back to college before my one year anniversary, which Seattle was not so excited about. Right. But um, I was, I mean, you know, as both of you know as well as any the. the Havoc that chemo can rack on your brain And just your ability To remember things was Killing me um, mm-hmm. All the side effects of things like Ativan and everything else My short term memory was shot I was, it was just, I needed to prove To myself that I could still Learn and do something um, I turned out that I had to completely Change the way that I studied And how I did tests And everything else But um, I was at least able to to do that, and actually going back during the summer was a little bit better because it wasn't a full load of classes. It was just, and I was able to see what I could and, and couldn't handle, and um, for me that that helped somewhat. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, I went there and then I wound up, I wound up realizing that I had gone too fast, and then I actually had to take some time off and try to figure everything out and, you know, kind of circumvented the normal route and didn't want to be the, the cancer girl on on campus, um, you know, at that point in my life, I I kind of wanted to pretend in some cases that, you know, I was exactly the same, only mm-hmm. I was totally different. And I knew it, but other people couldn't see it. So it made it somewhat difficult to go back to where I was beforehand. So I wound up leaving there after a while. But, so I wanted
3: to tell us, how did you find Stupid Cancer? And tell us where you're at now. Okay. Um, I found Stupid Cancer about, I think it's,
1: two years ago which to me seems totally silly considering I live in Connecticut and OMG was in New York and I kicked myself all the time for for not knowing beforehand Um, but it was because I think one or I think two or three actually two or three of my good friends on Facebook liked it and sent me a note that was like hey I think you should check this out this seems totally right up your alley and so I checked it out and I was like oh wow why didn't I know about this before and then there was a call for anybody that wanted to be involved in the steering committee for last year's OMG. So I sent Matt an email with a, you know, just a genuine, hey, this is amazing, really wish I'd had it, you know, 13 years ago at that point, and um, I would love to be involved. And right. that's, that's how I got involved. And I mean, I've I've just, I helped out with OMG last year, and I'm helping out with OMG this year. And I'm loving it, and I'm, I love the people, and I think it's an amazing cause that totally deserves support, so I'm going to give it.
0: And you managed to rebuild your life after college and wound up working in event marketing, is that correct?
1: Yep, I work for a um, small company that produces what we call executive management conferences, Um, but I am in the marketing department, and uh, I run some of our programs when we're on-site, and I am in charge of our database, and I do direct mail marketing, email marketing, um, some graphic design, some on-site stuff. It's a small company, so I've been able to get my hands in a lot of different pies and and really learn a lot of different things.
0: So are you completely blown away at the fact that Kenny and I were able to do this for three years without you and Allie?
1: Uh Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> completely blown away yes absolutely
0: yeah. i look back in awe saying how the hell did we do this without Ally ward and jen stewart and the steering committee and uh i got so 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 talk to us then how do you feel with the, i mean obviously you work in a different industry sector from the event perspective and i'm familiar with the executive c-suite level conferences uh platform and, and sector uh from your professional opinion, how is OMJ twenty thirteen looking uh through the lens of someone with your professional background?
1: Oh, it's looking awesome. I mean we're we're looking amazing. We've really I, I think Ali has done an amazing job in in setting everything up and working with our iPlanet folks and and everybody else on the steering committee has had fantastic ideas. In fact I even at my job we had a, a meeting about innovation and, and what could we do that was new and I was like, Oh hey, we're doing this for my conference. Um, you know, talking about you know, something that we were we were thinking about doing. We are throwing ideas around and, you know, so I've been able to pull my professional life and my volunteer life together in a weird weird sort of mending and, and just very fantastic coexistence So, But I think this year's event is going to be amazing And I think everybody on site Is going to be blown away by everything That um, Allie has been able to do
0: When is your actual Cancerversary?
1: Um, I, I kind of I honor two I honor my diagnosis date Which is in May, May 29th And then I really honor my transplant date Which is September 23rd Because that's the day That was day zero again and if that hadn't worked, I mean this is back in back in the what what do I oh what I was talking to somebody at one of the stupid cancer events and they were like, Wow, you had like all that for your for your bone marrow transplant, you know, all that like old school stuff and I was like wow yeah, I'm only thirty five. I'm old school stuff now. <laughs>
2: well
0: let's put this in perspective, the the brain tumor that I had is called the medulloblastoma. In 1996, January 96, the technology back then was there was no chemo for any brain tumors back then because the chemotherapy could not break the blood-brain barrier in human beings. And the surgery was invasive, tear your head apart, scoop it out, and stitch (laughs) yourself back together again. And the radiation was lock yourself inside Chernobyl for a month.
3: Today. (laughs) I can't help but laugh because you just said Chernobyl. It's not funny at all. By
0: comparison. Today, this diagnosis is largely a laparoscopic procedure with an oral chemotherapy and no radiation.
1: That's amazing.
0: So yeah, yeah. Um,
1: unfortunately for my type, it's it's almost the same. Um, my type of leukemia, acute myelogenous leukemia, has seven subtypes, and my subtype, because of course with me, I'm difficult, so I got yeah. the difficult <laughs> subtype um, that you know can travel up your spinal cord and, and into your brain. Luckily, mine didn't, but um, the uh, the chemo, when, when it hits, is pretty pretty much the same, but it's more common in children and adults over 65, so I was an anomaly all around.
0: Yes, but, you are um, an anomaly.
1: <laughs>
0: uh-huh. <laughs> By the way, May Wait. 29th is my birthday, so congratulations on the sharing something oh, hey. even more. Yeah.
3: There you go. That's awesome. Very cool. That's awesome. How old are you going
0: to be, Matthew? <sighs> I'm going to be 39 years old.
3: Every day is woo, a woo. gift, Matthew. Every day is a gift.
0: <laughs> I'm aging Absolutely. out of my own organization.
1: <laughs> no, you just have to Not be yet. diagnosed between, you exactly. know, those years. No, under that's 40. The al-
0: I had to invent all the Alumni Association of stupid yeah. Cancer. <laughs> so as long as you were diagnosed under 40, you can still belong to our yeah. little aging club. You could be 80 years old. I just worry that, like, as we get older, 22-year-olds will still find us hip and relevant.
3: They might not, but we'll try. We could hope. We could hope.
0: We can hope. We can hope. Well, Jen, thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't thank you enough for all the work you've done for the summit, how much you've helped Allie personally and professionally, and uh, no one really understands what it takes to put something like this together. It takes over a year to organize and we're already talking about next year's conference, and this year's hasn't even happened yet. So, you are a rock star. You are an amazing survivor, and, and God bless you. And I'll see you in two days.
1: I will see you in two days. Thanks for uh, having me on, guys. It was a absolutely. pleasure. We will see you in Viva Las Vegas.
0: All right. Jen it, everybody. All right, let's hit up the news here very quickly. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, we only really have one big event coming up, and that is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is hitting Vegas. We have over 450 People registered to be there. It is going to be incredibly exciting. There's actually still time to register Thank if you're if you're a slacker and you want to be there. There's plenty of room for other people to come. Go to OMG2013.org. That's OMG2013.org and learn more about the uh, Players Club, which is a super cool way to get involved in the uh, the fundraising for the conference. Uh, it never ends the fundraising. All right, the stupid cancer store. And by the way, we will be revealing a brand new item of merchandise in Las Vegas to be kept secret until that moment in time. But the store, the Stupid Cancer Store, has scores of awesome products for sale right now. And uh, we are hoping that you will um, be proud and wear Stupid Cancer. StupidCancerStore.org. And finally, of course, the Stupid Cancer Forums, our trust and the loyal Stupid Cancer Forums, have... Almost 5,000 active members on a day-to-day basis. This is a premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.org today. Yay!
2: Woohoo!
3: Go do okay. have FOMO. Come to <laughs> Vegas. All
0: right. And now, now for the, 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 the title match.
3: The main event. The
0: main event.
3: So to chat about the Obamacare healthcare law, Monica Bryan is a cancer rights attorney, speaker, and author. Monica is the chief operating officer for Navigating Cancer Survivorship, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing education and resources on cancer survivorship issues. And joining her is Matt Farber. He's the director of provider economics and policy, public policy for the Association of Community Cancer Centers. He works on issues relating to access to new therapies, proper reimbursement, sufficient coverage. And more for cancer care providers. Right. So basically, they're here to save the healthcare world.
0: Yes, exactly. Matt Barber and Monica Bryan. Hey, guys.
2: Hello.
4: Hello. Hey, how are you guys?
0: Welcome back to both of you, your returning champions to the Stupid Cancer Show.
4: It's always good to be here.
2: Thank you, yes.
0: Awesome. So, we're here because the OMG Summit is happening this week. You are both on a uh, workshop panel discussing the uh, myths and facts and truths and malarkey of the Affordable Care Act, um, a topic that has no short supply of conversation, discussion, debate, and uh, opinion. Uh, and we thought it would be wonderful to have our final show before the OMG Summit uh, about this very topic and let people know that we'll, this is what we will be discussing. And it's the difference, I think the last time we had you on the show, it was a... Um, it was kind of a still a debate. Now it's the law, and people have to suck it up and just deal with it if they don't like it. So why don't we start with Monica because you are a lawyer, and I have to respect lawyers.
3: <laughs> um,
0: and I've known you a very long time now, and you've been privy to everything in the young adult cancer movement. Talk to us about the uh, sort of the, the, the biggest challenges that are still being uh, addressed today from a legal perspective on the Affordable Care Act.
4: Sure. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right in saying that it is, in fact, law of the land right now. The Supreme Court has said that, you know, all of the provisions are constitutional. This is the law as it stands. That being said, we have not actually hit in our home run yet. Um, There are still a lot of things that need to happen in order for the law as it was intended to actually work. So we still need states to get on it and start implementing some of the things that they need to implement. We're still waiting on regulations from the federal agencies, Um, and there's, you know, at least five different federal agencies that are involved in this. Um, And we're still waiting on details from the federal government in terms of what these exchanges, these marketplaces for insurance are going to look like. Um, We're still waiting to figure out if the law is going to be funded. And, shocker, there are still, in fact, efforts to repeal the law happening in
3: Congress. The efforts with I think okay, so I'm a journalist, and I know way too much about politics, which is kind of <laughs> makes me a little bit disenfranchised from politics in general from seeing it all day long, but part of you know it's with Obama winning the second term, this is just my professional opinion I'm not going to say whether I support or against whatever. I don't see how it can get repealed. People make a lot of noise on the hill, and lobbyists make a lot of noise i personally don't see. maybe you know matt can answer this i don't see how it can get repealed the supreme court has already confirmed it there's no one retiring from the supreme court anytime soon and i just don't see how it's going to go anywhere and by the time we have a next president it's we're going to be so in pretty deep with the law so are the people who are trying to come out against it do they have any ground to stand on
2: well, you're absolutely right. You know, it is the law. It's gone through so many machinations now with the Supreme Court getting involved that it would be very hard to overturn it. But, uh, you know, having said that, the beauty of the United States government is that, you know, every two years we elect new people to it, and if they deem it necessary and wise, uh, they can go ahead and, and change the law, rewrite the law, overturn the law. While the President Obama is in office, this law will not be overturned. There is really every every avenue has been exhausted to try that, and so that is not going to happen. And you're right. We will be very entrenched in this new uh health care model by the time there is a new president. so by that time we'll you know we'll we move on to something else. I think so. I think it'll shift away from a mm-hmm. repeal of of uh you know Obamacare or the Reform Act, if you will. Um, and it will move on to the next phase of health care policy evolution. You know, we've seen this, you know, every 20 years, give or take. Uh, President Nixon tried to reform Medicare and the healthcare care system. Um, and, you know, he was also very successful with the, you know, starting the war on cancer. And then in the 90s, a lot of it was led by uh, Hillary Clinton. And um, and now we had it again just a few years ago. So this is not something that will ever really go away.
3: hmm so, what do you guys see? And I'll turn this over to Monica. What do you see as the part of the law that I guess is an endangered species, so to speak? Like, what's the one part of what's already been implemented or what's about to be implemented that you think is vulnerable to being repealed? Just you know, individual parts of the law, since you know, a law as a whole, sure. a lot of it's going to stick.
4: Sure, and I'm not I'm not so sure necessarily that that they're going to actually be able to repeal it per se. But I think that the things that I'm particularly concerned about is what's gonna happen with expanding Medicaid in the mm-hmm. various states. Right. So the Supreme Court did say it was constitutional, but they essentially gave states the option of whether they were going to expand or not. So now a lot of governors really
3: already they, have come out against and saying they won't do it.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what's what's in effect going to happen then is there's going to now be inequalities of care depending on which state you live in.
3: Yeah, and so one of my big peeves, I know I'm not supposed to talk about my opinion, but one of my... Sure you can. Okay, fine. We can even curse. Okay, fine. One of my (laughs) peeves is the reasoning that the governors have for not wanting to expand Medicaid is the cost to the state. And that is incredibly frustrating because people would need Medicaid because they are too poor for health insurance. So what are these people supposed to do? They have two options, die or show up in an emergency room when they're already so sick that they're going to cost even more money and they're not getting any preventative medicine. So I find that frustrating that their argument is always money, 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 but they're willing to fund you know other things whatever domestic programs, tax cuts, whatever their agenda might be, that I feel like they're overlooking the reason why people need Medicaid.
4: I think that, that you're certainly right to an extent, and I also think that it's a false argument, because the way that the law is written, for the first few years of implementation of the expansion, the federal government will cover 100% of the cost of the expansion. And then after that, the federal government will cover 90% of these Newly eligible individuals who are at or below 133% of the federal poverty level, which is about $15,000 a year, give or take. So we're really talking about people who um, are, are struggling financially significantly.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, so, so it is sort of a false argument in saying it's going to cost the state so much money um, because it it's being covered by the by the federal government. And like you said, these individuals are getting care in the emergency rooms most often, and the state's paying for that.
0: Let, let's switch to Matt for a second. I want him to talk about what ACCC is, what it does, and how it's, what, what its role is um, in um, trickling down knowledge and information to the community of resources it has.
2: Sure. Um, well, ACCC is a provider-based organization, and basically our members are all the places that provide cancer care from hospitals, large and small, academic, non-academic, to practices, um, cancer care clinics, things like that. And everyone within, our, within those institutions then becomes members of ACCC. So the physicians, nurses, social workers, uh, navigators, pharmacists, really anyone who's involved in care uh, becomes members of ACCC. And, and when it comes to the Affordable Care Act, um, right now we are truly in an education phase. Uh, we want to make sure that our members are as educated as possible because they are more often than not going to be the ones who are guiding people through some of these complicated decisions um, about new insurance options and purchasing insurance through the exchanges or re- or getting qualified for federal subsidies, things like that. You know we saw that every time there's a big change in health care, it falls on the providers as the ones who really guide people through. We saw that when the prescription drug benefit was introduced for Medicare. Um, and we 're going to see that again with these exchanges uh, because a lot of people will be uh, if people are on uh, individual insurance or small businesses get their insurance through them, um, they may be eligible for these new exchanges and and especially for those individuals uh their premiums most likely the prices will most likely go down in many cases uh, so there'll be a lot of people asking a lot of questions, and it 's the nurses it 's the social workers the financial counselors and a lot of these offices and hospitals who are really going to be guiding folks through that decision-making process, and they need Monica, help to to learn.
3: Monica, I'm going to turn this one to you. One of the things that you mentioned in your notes and that I've heard is a big criticism of the law is that it's going to kill jobs, that for small businesses, I think it's believed it's if you employ 50 people or more, you have to offer health insurance, and a lot of businesses are threatening to either – it's full-time workers. are either going to cut people's hours to put them into part-time. I know there were some threats of, like, major companies doing this, cutting people's hours to make them part-time workers or laying off or not hiring to not get above that threshold so they don't have to hire workers They're actually prefer to pay a fine. Um, so what's kind of you know, the myth versus fact in the background of what you guys have heard from your research and from your advocacy of how the impact it will be on business and the economy?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, I just want to start with saying no one has a crystal wall. So no one can say for sure exactly what's going to happen. And when it comes down to it, I will fully admit I am a lawyer and not an economist. That being said, um, what we're hearing from a lot of employers is nothing's going to change. You know, they've offered health insurance to their employees in the past. They're going to continue offering health insurance to their employees. Right. Um, there's a lot There's a lot more at stake. For employers, than just the dollars and cents, you know, in terms of a, a healthy workforce is a strong workforce. Right. So, you know, it, it also benefits employers in a lot of ways to, to offer health yeah, insurance.
3: Absolutely. Because, you, you know, also, employers are recruiting talent. And if you're a company and you're not offering health insurance or you're offering crappy health insurance or whatever it might be, you're not going to recruit talent, talented people who can affect and help your bottom line.
4: Absolutely, and I frankly know my peers who went in looking for, you know, their first job out of law school, and, and to be perfectly honest, the benefit package was more important to them than the actual amount of salary that they brought in because of how difficult it can be to get health insurance once you have a preexisting condition. So for some people, health insurance is worth even more than higher salary. So, so I, I just think that some of the fear behind um, behind this, that, that all employers are going to stop offering health insurance because um, they'd just rather pay the fine, um, is, is a little bit uh, uncalled for.
3: Yeah. And Matt, what do you think about the companies who are actually coming out and saying that they're not going to, that they're going to cut hours? Or do you think it's just you know, false threats or a political agenda? You know, what do you think about the companies, you know, from a policy perspective? What do you think about the companies who are making these threats? that they are going to cut hours and cut employees if, or not even hire more workers?
2: Well, you know, I think, you know, like with anything, you're going to get those outliers who will maybe go to these extreme measures to make a point or to try and save some money. Um, but overall, I agree that this is really just more of a bluff than anything else to try and, you know, raise the volume on it. Um, you know, because they're going to be potentially uh, make it harder for their employees to stay healthy, thus be productive employees, and that's not anything they want to have, and they would become less attractive to, to those potential hires. Um, you know, the the interesting question for me really comes in on the individual marketplace. Um, I mean, certainly one of the best things about the law is that patients with preexisting condition can no longer be denied coverage. You know, which I think is great, especially for a lot of the audience that we'll be talking Mm -hmm. to. Um, But the other side of it is, for those, you know, for the younger, healthier crowd, do they even buy insurance or not? Um, Or do they just say, well, if I do get sick, then I'll just go to the emergency room? Obviously, that's a. If that's the case, then you know that was one of the main reasons why the insurance companies even bought into this law in the first place. And if that doesn't come to fruition, you know, we may be getting a lot of pushback in the way of higher premiums for everyone else uh, from those insurance companies.
0: I want to chime in with a layperson question. I, I, the inherent problem with all of this is that no one without a in political science understands it. Who is responsible to laypersonize this to the average Joe citizen that may still just be utterly confused about how it affects them how to take advantage of it when you need it, and what it's going to do for the country at large.
2: Well, I'm sure it's going to come as a big surprise, but it is going to fall squarely on the shoulders of everyone's favorite federal government. Uh, To explain this, the Department of Health and Human Services is preparing an advertising campaign to uh, to educate people about the exchange process and how to purchase it and how to qualify for subsidies that will be beginning in June. Um, of this year for open enrollment in October. Uh, why the government is waiting until three months before open enrollment begins to start this advertising education campaign, I, I have no idea. You know This should have been started uh, a long time ago. Um, but it is really going to fall to them and to some state uh, regulators, and then finally the insurers themselves. Um, and if that's not a conflict of interest, I'm not sure what is. Um, so those are going to be, be, be the people who are really out in front of this you know, trying to, to get people educated.
3: And also for, you know, just for our audience and for people tuning in, um, just for young adults, you know, you I know you already mentioned pre existing conditions. What are some other benefits to the, you know, younger crowd that they can that they're getting from the healthcare law? I think go to Monica first.
4: Sure. Well I'll say, you know, the the number one thing I think is the no more being denied based on a pre existing condition. Um, I think also the fact that insurance companies can't look at a pre existing condition to determine a premium level, so you can't be charged more just because you have or had cancer. Um, and then also, which I'm hoping most people have heard of at this point, is that young adults can stay on their parents' health insurance plans until they're 26 now. Um, And, you know, over, I I don't know the exact number, but I know over 6 million young adults in this country now have health insurance because of this one provision where they wouldn't have had it before.
3: Yeah, that was huge. I wish, you know, I I wish I had that when I was younger and starting out in freelancing, because that would have been pretty awesome. I I got cut off when I was 22. But another thing is that a lot of people have said, I think even Chuck Schumer said that his daughter got to go on his health policy because she was in law school. And I guess the way that her... I think that's who I'm talking about thinking of, but um, just even like them being able to see the benefits that people who go to graduate school or go to medical school, they're not making any money, but their parents' insurance is cutting them off, and they can't afford to get like COBRA because it's ungodly expensive. I have
0: another idiot idiot question. This this entire conversation is way above my pay grade. (laughs) So here's another question. And this is total ignorance because I'm really – even me, I have no idea like anything about this stuff. If the government is still going to provide money to people that can't afford to buy a policy through the exchange, the insurance companies are still getting customers, right? So yes. why why how is this not still capitalism?
2: Well, it's it's certainly still capitalism. It, capitalism. It's government subsidized capitalism, if if you want to you know put it that way. I mean, what we're essentially doing is um, you know getting everyone into the insurance marketplace in one way or another. Some through their own pockets, some through the help of the government. Um, you know, but essentially what the law is stating is they want everyone to have some form of insurance. You know, the thought process being that if everyone hasn't thought has insurance, even a basic plan, is that we will not overtax the system where it's most expensive, i.e. the emergency room, where patients wait to the last minute, go in, um, and often that's where some of the highest costs are rung up in the system. And so people have this insurance, can get checked up. There's more preventative um, uh, options, more screenings are covered, things like that. Then you would ultimately be saving, not only saving lives, but also saving the system money. Um so that's that's kind of where I think the government was coming from in in pushing people to purchase insurance
0: so all right so so then can you we talk about the risk pools and I also want to talk about something also which is basically you know we live in a a a hubris laden culture of gluttony and horrible fast food crappiness that. The poor can only afford to do that, and a carrot is more expensive than a Big Mac. Uh, I just said a lot of stuff. But where I'm trying to go with this is is how can we possibly afford the insurance company to accept people that don't have insurance who are obese and poor? Is that a horrible – I don't even know if I'm being politically correct here. I'm just trying to – I can't wrap my head around how this is going to work if we don't live in a culture of wellness to begin
2: with. Um well, I silence the crowd <laughs> how about how about i'll I'll try and tackle some of that your second question there um I'll, and I'll start with there since I've honestly forgotten what your first question was by now, but me too um, <laughs> sorry. uh so I think part of it is is that you know there's been a lot of attention being given to prevention and to screenings and to wellness programs, and you know there are more insurance plans are being offered with Uh, you know, additional benefits offered if folks take advantage of them, you know, like, um, you know, discounts to gyms or, um, you know, coupons to farmers markets or or other ways that they're trying to get people to to eat healthier, and to live healthier lifestyles, thus bringing down the costs. And I think that that's been an effort, but you're right. I mean, there's a lot of inherent issues in our culture that prevent us from getting, um, you know, from getting to that point. So, you know, will those programs actually work? You know, that, you know, like we said before early in the show, we don't have a crystal ball. There's really no way to know for sure. Um, but that's not going to stop them from trying. Um, and so I think what a lot of the insurance companies are realizing is that they can't just offer the, the same old, same old coverage. Um, they have to try and be a little bit more proactive with patients um, to get them healthier, because in the end it will end up saving them money uh, as well.
3: And we have. I'm going to have a question from the chat room. So this is a hypothetical situation. Let's say it's a, you know, hypothetically speaking, let's say it's a blue state. Let's say it's New York, and then in six years we get a Republican governor. So with that in mind, the question is, if a state chooses to opt into Medicaid expansion, providing care to thousands of people in that state, then a few, later, few years later they don't like it, they can't opt back out, making people who signed up without access to care again. So is that accurate, that the state implements the Medicaid expansion, they can't back out? I'll put that to Monica.
4: Well, thanks for giving me the the tough question.
3: Uh sorry. (laughs) What (laughs) color is my shirt?
4: You can punt.
0: You
3: can punt.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure that there is a a firm answer, and Matt, correct me if, if you know differently. Um, But my understanding of it is that absolutely they could change their mind year to year. I don't necessarily think it's a realistic thing that would actually happen, however, because once you give people access and you've spent the money to create the system and expand the system, it's a lot harder to go backwards and to shrink the system again.
2: No, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, just let's look at this, you know, realistically from a governor's point of view if they expand Medicaid, it's not just the federal money that's being spent to expand coverage. It's a lot of, there is state money being spent to set up the infrastructure, to set up oversight, because states will still be responsible for oversight of those new patients. Um, A Medicaid office will have to be expanded within the state, et cetera. So there's going to be a lot of resource that will be poured in uh, to Medicaid expansion um, by the state itself. And then the other side of it is I firmly believe that eventually every state will expand their Medicaid, that the... essentially the free money now uh, or the heavily discounted money in the future will be too good to pass up um, for states and that they'll get sick and tired of, if you're in a state that declines Medicaid coverage, everyone in that state is still paying for other people's Medicaid expansion right? because their taxes, which have gone up, um, are paying for Medicaid expansion. So even if you don't have it in your state, you're paying for someone else to have it. And I think that would be enough reason for people to want to really push to get that extra uh, infusion of cash.
3: Right. And one of the other issues I've personally seen with people who have Medicaid is that not everybody accepts Medicaid. I know that even my oncologist does not accept Medicaid, and even if you had like New York Medicaid, just doesn't take it. But mm-hmm. she takes Medicare because old people get cancer. Let's be honest. That's their bread and butter is accepting Medicare. So do you see the system kind of going towards a single-payer system where the Medicaid state system will kind of phase into Medicare? And Medicare is what people over 65 get right now, the government, you know, health insurance for seniors. So, uh, Matt, I'll put that to you. Do you see the Medicaid system going that way?
2: No, uh, I don't at all. I mean, the fact that less and less providers are accepting Medicaid is a serious problem, and that's something that I know a lot of my providers have issue with, and it's frankly because reimbursement continues to get ratcheted down further and further, um, you know, 80 cents, 60 cents on the dollar, if not lower, for for care being given. It's hard as a business to ask providers to accept those types of patients because they're essentially losing money uh, every time they treat certain patients, and that's very hard to ask them to do. What I do see happening is more and more Medicaid will be kind of funneled into more private plan models, HMOs. Mm-hmm. Um, we're already seeing this in some states. We're seeing um, demonstration projects where they're looking at this, um, and I think that's more of the model where you're going to see more of a um, like a management uh, HMO system for Medicaid patients as opposed to the the straight uh, state plans that we see.
0: Matt, within the A Triple C universe, you obviously have a lot of influence, and you trickle down information to the constituents in all fifty states. Um, how receptive are they, by and large, to adopting the changes they have to? Because we talked about states' rights and states' issues. Like, what is your role in helping to mollify or facilitate that dialogue?
2: You know, well, in some states the providers are fighting it. They don't want to see Medicaid expanded and they're, they're not too keen on, on exchanges. Um, and in those states, if, if they are, feel strong enough about it, um, you know we may help them voice those opinions to their state elected officials. In most states, most providers are for Medicaid expansion and for implementation of exchanges because, quite frankly, they see this as a way to get more patients covered. In the end, it's what would you rather have, a patient with no insurance, or a patient with basic insurance to an exchange? Um, and the answer, to typically, especially if it's in a hospital setting, is a patient with any kind of insurance. And so you, know, you have a lot of folks, especially provider, uh, hospital-based um, providers, um, who are really out there supporting the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, who are um, trying to help educate their patients, and I think will become major um, opportunities for patients who are looking for information uh to help help them sign up for these plans they're going to really be trying to push that information out to their patients
0: so i get all right so at, in terms of the patient advocate community especially the young adult patient advocate community who, whom you will be addressing uh in Las Vegas we are the ones who stand the most to gain from this legislation being law Uh, What are the best ways for us to truly, obviously besides listening to you tell us, what are the best ways that the young adult cancer patient caregiver advocate population can take a more active role to engage in the benefits of this and to espouse its virtues and to sort of become more activist in nature to ensure it really does what it's supposed to do? We'll start with Monica. Monica.
2: Well,
4: you know, I'm a huge proponent of legislative advocacy, and I think this is one of those opportunities that especially young adults need to get make their voices heard. You know if you live in a state where your governor is saying we're not going to expand Medicaid, start picking up the phone, sending emails, tweeting Facebook, all of that, and let them know that that's not okay with you um, you know you get involved in how your state's planning on setting up their exchange. You know, I know um, I live in Chicago, and Illinois is about to have an open conference call of all the stakeholders just to be able to talk about what we want to see our exchange board look like. Um, And I also think that, you know, never underestimate the power of a personal story. So if you've been affected or if you've benefited from this law, perhaps you got to stay on your parents' plan until you were 26, and it meant that you didn't have to come up with $2,000 a month to pay your COBRA
3: Or take a job you don't want just for benefits. Or take (laughs) a job,
4: exactly. You know, contact your legislator, say thank you if they happen to vote for this law, or say that you're disappointed if they didn't, and tell them why. Because that personal story goes a long way and might impact how they vote on different things in the future.
3: Yeah, absolutely. All very good advice for our listeners. So I'm going to turn over to Matt, and then I'll, we'll get to you, Monica. So what are your thoughts on the future of the health care law? Do you see it that we're going to see more obstruction and complaining and lobbying against it, or do you think that people will embrace it and realize the, all the good that it's doing, not just for everybody, especially the young adult movement?
2: Well, I think that the you know the next the major thing that we're going to see, and this also ties into that last point of what folks can do, is – a lot of funding may be at risk just because something is law um, and the supreme court has said so it doesn't mean that congress has to fund it um, at at proper levels every year they can always ratchet back funding and we've already seen that with some pieces of the law so i think that's something that people need to watch out for very closely if there are areas that people have been able to take advantage of that may be at risk um, that's another thing they can let their elected officials know about Um, I totally agree that, um, you know, taking your personal story, calling your member of Congress and telling them about your story if you've used part of the law is really vital. You'd be surprised at how often a congressman gets a call from someone saying thank you. Um, It really doesn't happen all that often, and they really like it. When people aren't calling and complaining and asking for this and asking for that, if if they're getting a thank you for doing something, it really does go a long way um, and so if you benefited like we said definitely tell your story but if you know that something you've taken advantage of is at risk of a funding cut and some of the prevention fund as an example um, is something that we may see cut um, you know money that ensures that preventative tests and, and screenings are, are paid for at no cost and things like that, you know, money is already being siphoned off for other programs. If you don't want to see that happen, you need to let them know. And because I think on the federal level anyway, that's really kind of what we're going to see, especially as part of this debt ceiling negotiation, the budget questions that keep coming up, um, really these big-ticket issues, they're looking for money anywhere. And the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, has a big target on its
3: back. Very cool. And, Monica, I'm going to turn to you.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely 100% agree with everything that Matt just said, um, and, and I will just say that I know for some folks it can be very, this idea of going out and being an advocate on your own, um, so without actually calling any out, I will say that most major cancer organizations have advocacy efforts. So, you know, it might just be as some something as simple as signing up for their email blasts and then you putting in your address and hitting send and a letter gets sent to your, your elected official. So even if you don't have a lot of time or, or you think that you're not um, able to, to advocate on your own, um, there are some really easy, simple things that you can do to make a difference.
0: My, my concluding thoughts are that this is the fascinating conversation that could be in debate ad nauseum 365 in its own filibuster for eternity. So but but I think the part that intrigues me the most, and Matt, you work for for congressional leaders as part of your career, is the fact that a personal story is all it really might take to, to explain to them that stuff actually happens in the world outside D.C., And even if you happen to be, not everyone can be Debbie Wasserman Schultz who had breast cancer as a young adult and then forced the hand and got real legislation passed to help young women with breast cancer. It's unfortunate that that's kind of how it has to be. But you guys are making me more optimistic that we're not just totally boned uh, in the long term. So that's your takeaway. I'm, I'm feeling less boned.
4: Well, then my work here
2: is done. Yeah, really, what else is there to say after that? You
0: can retire right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, any any final thoughts to our listeners? And I, I'm so excited to have, have you guys uh, sort of repeat this for a live crowd uh, in person on, uh, on Friday and Saturday.
2: Well, just, you know, I know that I'm really looking forward to the session um, this week, and, you know, I encourage anyone listening who's going to be there, come with your questions. We really do want to hear from you what – what concerns you about the law, what you want to know, what, what's the truth versus the fiction. Um, that's why we're going to be there to help you through that and, and to hopefully get you active in that patient advocacy role we were just talking about.
0: Monica?
4: I, I can't wait to be in Vegas, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting some good questions. Hopefully none of them stump us too bad, but if they do, we'll find <laughs> the answer.
0: Well, I can't thank you guys enough for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Have a safe trip to Vegas, and I'll see you in two days.
3: We'll see you you then. Bye. Bye, guys.
0: Matt Barber and Monica Bryant from Navigating Cancer Survivorship and the Association of Community Cancer Centers.
3: That was a fab conversation.
0: Andy, you should have your own radio show about Obamacare.
3: (laughs) I'd probably run out of material in, like, two days. Well, I I could probably go, like, a week. But yeah, I could I could talk about <laughs> without
0: food and water and
3: maybe yeah, air. I could talk about healthcare policy, like upside down with my eyes closed, right, in a like life vest,
2: and <laughs> I still think
3: with no access to internet
0: and only and no oxygen.
3: And I had no access to internet tonight because right. our, our Wi-Fi is down, so I was getting a little stressed out. But yeah, I impressed myself with my being able to remember certain things. No,
0: you you are truly the expert. Yeah. So, anyway, thank you. This has been a great show. This is our final show before OMG.
3: OMG. We are
0: off next Friday, uh, next Monday, but we, we'll be back in two weeks, and we'll announce that again in the closing remarks. But, yes, Obamacare, here to stay. It's the real thing. And Get you. the facts. Be smart. Don't be stupid. And uh, with that, it is now time for our closing sequence.
4: Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the
0: uh,
3: Internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And
4: so... To all of you, a
0: fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you got done it again.
2: That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer.
0: Okay, folks, that's our show, broadcast number 263. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guest, Jen Stewart. Monica Bryant of Navigating Cancer Survivorship, and Matt Farber of the Association of Community Cancer Centers.
3: And just a reminder, we are off next Monday. We are returning to the airwaves on Monday, May 6th. Join us then as we open the floodgates to expose triple negative breast cancer, a a misunderstood variant of the disease that affects up to 25,000 women each year. We will be joined by Haley Dynerman, Malak Compton-Rock, Dr. Lisa Newman from the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and the adult, the Young Adult Survivor Spotlight is Rachel Poppas a Triple Negative Breast Cancer Survivor. It's TNBC Palooza
0: in Indeed. two weeks. All right, if you've missed any of our past shows, you can download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, If it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great two weeks. We'll see you back here in two weeks, live at 8 p.m. And for those of you coming to the OMG Cancer Summit, we will see you in Las Vegas in two days.
3: Good night.